Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. This is Steve Showolf, your host, and this is episode seven, Play Ball. Play Ball! And it's my pleasure today to have as a guest on the podcast, Jim Margulis. Jim is a, a fantastic sports writer. He has his own website, SoxMachine.com. He co-hosts a podcast about baseball and specifically the Chicago White Sox uh, with uh, Josh Nelson. And uh, today, after having a couple of serious podcasts or podcasts that are related to serious questions concerning whether struggling businesses will be able to recover from insurance companies, I thought I'd try to lighten the mood and turn to baseball. So Jim, we're happy to have you on the podcast and welcome. Thanks for asking me. All right. You know, I've done this before I started the last couple podcasts, and I feel torn with trying to talk about baseball. And that's because I think everybody here is striving to return to normalcy. And I think baseball would provide a symbolic happiness to people, I think, that uh, we're on the right track. And so some <laughs> there's part of me that thinks that talking about baseball is a little bit frivolous based on the fact that I don't think we are going to return to normalcy for quite some time. Uh, Jim, I know you're in uh, Tennessee. I'm here in Texas. My wife is uh, a chief medical officer of a hospital and uh, a clinician who's seeing uh, or will be seeing some uh, COVID patients. And, and I can tell, I know you've done some thoughtful analysis on this, but it, it's going to be a while before things become normal. So um, I appreciate you talking about baseball, but I also wanted to say the caveat that I appreciate your understanding of kind of the bigger picture, which is um, who knows when we'll be returning to, to normal. Yeah, as somebody in my position, it's a little bit strange in that uh, theoretically I benefit from baseball coming back no matter what, you know, no matter the risk of the players or the managers or staff no matter how many people get sick, you know, I still have something to write about. And my site traffic goes up, podcast listens go up. You know, if I were to take like a really, I guess, <laughs> just a really impersonal, unemotional, unhuman or inhumane view of it, that would be the way to go. But, you know, when you see just yeah, when, you, when you treat players as humans and, and also my wife is in public health. So I hear about uh, COVID and testing every day and the struggle to get on top of it and the struggle for public health. And I think that sports, you know, should have a active role in public health. And that, uh, you know, when the NBA shut down its season, the country took notice. You know, I don't think it was until the NBA stopped playing that uh, people really started taking it seriously. And I think, uh, you know, when sports comes back and when baseball tries to come back and pretend it's normal, or at least, you know, everybody tries to set it aside and say, let's use, use this as a distraction you know, that's potentially a little bit dangerous because people let their guards down and I don't think we should be letting our guards down. So I'm treating it as a, it's a weird uh, two-pronged thing where I have to talk about the moves and games and uh, what have you as they're happening, but I also have to be mindful and also uh, try to stress the fact that uh, 
this is still a very uh, fluid and potentially dangerous situation. Maybe maybe nobody should be doing this. So it's a little bit tricky for me, and I'm kind of taking it, you know, as a cliche says, as a date of time, hoping that I get it right. No, and I think that's why you're a fantastic guest today, because I think we're of like minds on this. Uh, you know, both our wives, as you noted, are uh, in the, the healthcare profession. And uh, before we talk about baseball, I just want to, again, thank all of those who are out there trying to uh, help us get through this pandemic and to urge people to uh, do what you can to follow CDC guidelines, wear masks and social distancing. So the the sooner that we can get to normalcy means it'd be normal for the healthcare providers because they're the last people who are going to see things being normal. And I, I don't think it'll be normal for our wives for quite some time, Jim. All right. Well, what am I even talking about baseball for? Uh, this is a mediation-related uh, podcast. And, and really, a lot of my themes try to demonstrate that settlements, mediations, are all about negotiations, and, and negotiations are found everywhere in, in life. And frankly, the recent negotiations between Major League Baseball and its players' union, uh, which took place very publicly over the last month on how, if and when, to bring baseball back this year, I think provides a way to take a look at, at negotiations. And unfortunately, I think... One of the things that we saw here is this is probably Act One, and which is going to be a very long horror show that's leading to the culmination of the expiration of the collective bargaining agreement for baseball in December of uh, 2021. And there's clearly some very large issues that the players in MLB disagree with. You know, Jim, I thought you'd be a a good person to uh, kind of discuss, you know, when the average fan looks at baseball, Forbes, I looked at Forbes, it said in 2019, baseball generated $10.7 billion. So I think the average fan thinks, how can't you figure out a way to divide a pie of $10.7 billion to everybody's satisfaction? But it seems to be a little more difficult than that, Jim. So why don't you kind of Talk to us about what are the big problems um, that affect both baseball's economics in general, and then we can talk about how that played out in these recent discussions about how to have a 2020 season. Well, the big problems are that, you know, as you've mentioned, uh, revenue is a big deal in baseball and, and going up, and they've set record revenues until you know, prior to this year. I think uh, most of the decade were record highs in revenues. But the players have been receiving a decreasing percentage of that revenue, and uh, you know the, the players have been very mindful in terms of just you know what they contribute to baseball success and and wanting their fair share of it, and to see their decreased percentage of revenue going down, and it's partially because of two things: on the front end of contracts or, or players' time in the majors, he's under team control for six full seasons, and the first three seasons they make. The league minimum or close to it, which is about $550,000. And then the next three years, they go into arbitration where they make something closer to market rate, although it's still pretty much, you know, especially for star players, a lot lower than what they would earn on the open market. So they earn less money on the front end. And then on the back end, when they go into free agency, there's the problem where fewer teams are getting better or like trying to actively get better through free agency. And it's because of uh, this very 
postseason minded form of baseball projections in terms of like statistical analysis, teams are better at assessing where they are when it comes to the likelihood of having a winning season or being, you know, making the playoffs. And so when a team says that, uh, oh, we're going to be below 500 this year, we only have like, say, a 15% chance of making the playoffs. Do we want to try to bet against those odds and improve our team to not quite get there? And more and more teams are saying, no, we'd rather punt the season. We'd rather uh, trade guys away, not spend to improve our team. And so these free agents who are not like the top of the market, but are you know credible major league players who would help most teams, they're having a hard time finding contracts to their liking or contracts they used to get because so many more teams are, are cognizant of just how good they are, how far away they are, and they don't see the value in making their teams decent. They'd rather... For a lot of teams, it's more useful to have a terrible team because there are some rewards. You spend less on a team, you get a higher draft pick for next season. And, and so teams see that and say, why would I spend an extra $30 million on payroll to be a middle-of-the-pack team that doesn't get the rewards of a postseason, doesn't get the rewards of a, you know, of a higher draft pick, and is just kind of hanging in purgatory? So I think that's where teams are, and uh, that doesn't benefit the players. So we've seen the average salary in baseball, the average payroll go down, even though revenues are going up. And that's really the chief source of the friction. Well, and I think it's a, a fascinating situation. You know, Jim, how do you think things like fantasy baseball and, and fans, the truly active fan is very cognizant of the contract status of various players. And it seems to me, 10 years ago, tanking was a bad word. And fans wouldn't put up with it. If your team just didn't try to win, that was very taboo. Then you had the, you know, the Astros. I mean, lots of teams have tanked. Most recently, the Astros did it with a lot of flair, losing, what, over 100 games a few years in a row and ultimately winning, you know, the World Series. But it seems like fans now defend management as if it was their money. I mean, you hear fans all the time be like, yeah, there was no reason for us to sign, you know, that player because we're not going to be good for another couple years. And, you know, I'm just curious, do you agree with me that that fans are tolerating tanking and are more cognizant of the economics from the owner's perspective now than they ever were? I think so. I think there's, uh, you know, when, when Moneyball came along in the early 2000s and then uh, more and more teams adopted it, they got Ivy League general managers with uh, backgrounds in economics and so forth versus ex-players who generally matriculated up into the front offices in previous decades. When it was ex-players in the front office, you used to have more kind of old-fashioned competition, GMs wanting to build the best teams and one-up each other and, and bring those competitive juices from the field into the offices. And now you're seeing front offices more focused on maximizing and optimizing. And when Moneyball took hold and more and more front offices came to have success with this viewpoint of just making decisions a little bit smarter and a little bit not wasting as much money in years on contracts that are bad ideas from the start. I think fans saw that and they said, I want my team to have that. And I want my team to have that in, you know, in, in a lot of cases, any cost. And so as we've seen like with the White Sox. The White Sox were one of those teams in purgatory for a while where their 80 wins, high 70s, couldn't quite get over the hump. And fans were just happy to tear it down because they're tired of being in purgatory. And what we've seen are far less interesting teams, but you can picture this window because they trade their best players for cheap young players who are promising. 
and they still have that promise. And when they're prospects, they haven't been taken out of the package. You can put all your hopes and dreams on them. And I think for fans who have, they haven't been able to see their teams get to the playoffs. They'd just rather have this period of unfettered optimism where they can just uh, dream what it will be like three years from now, rather than uh, get stuck being frustrated day to day. But I think there is danger in not trying, you know, just, you know, having a team where making a ton of profit, you don't have to worry about like an extra 15 or $20 million on the payroll because you'll still be coming out way ahead. Why not try to make the team five to 10 wins better? Who knows? You know, maybe if uh, some prospects click ahead of schedule, you might be able to make 85 wins, sneak into a wild card. And I think uh, that's been a little bit weird and anti-competitive and for a, you know, for an industry that's all about entertainment and, generating hope it's been a little bit worrisome just how much fans and front offices alike have been able to just abandon the idea of hope for these ideal long-term gains that sometimes materialize and sometimes don't or take a lot longer than fans expect well i think there's also a disconnect right now historically my understanding is there was always a stronger correlation between the amount of fans you could put in the seat and the amount of money you would make as a team. And we've talked about revenue for MLB going up, but attendance hasn't necessarily gone up. So that revenue seems to be coming from other sources, TV contracts, sources that are less tied to in any particular year drawing fans to the ballpark. So I don't know if that's, you know, whether you agree with that, whether you think that also contributes to what's going on right now, but it does seem to me to be something that might not be sustainable going forward, that at some point, a higher percentage of teams need to try to be competitive for the overall health of the league. Oh, I I agree with you there. And, and yeah, I think that's what makes it easy to absorb, you know, say three to five years of losing team per team is just, yeah, you can maybe lose 10,000 fans or so at the gates, but in some cases, like with the White Sox, with their publicly financed stadium, they don't really pay rent on the stadium, especially when they draw low. They have a threshold of, I think, 1.8 million fans in a season before they start paying rent per ticket. So they're not really penalized that much for drawing fewer fans than a winning team would have, and they still get uh, TV ratings, although when, you, when, when you're as bad as the White Sox have been for as long as they've been, the TV ratings can dry up too. And that's a little bit, I think that hits their pockets a little bit more in tandem with the fans to make it a a little bit harder to swallow. But, you know, the idea is that you take these short-term hits on the immediate revenue, which is cushioned by the TV deals and now casino deals with uh, gambling on uh, wagering on sports and having partnerships with between the league and the casinos being involved to where, you know, all these uh, revenue streams get split evenly among the teams their streaming technology for uh, streaming games online, that's also been a, a, a lucrative source of non-game-based revenue. So there are a lot of different streams coming in to where the teams don't feel like they'll be economically at risk for taking that hit, like you mentioned. But it's a big-picture thing. And when you have you know everything optimized on winning and getting to the playoffs and winning World Series, that's the only thing that matters versus having a decent you know, over 500 team that entertains you when you go to a game or when you tune in on a random summer night, I think in the big picture, it just makes keeping fans interest a little bit uh, harder to do. And then when you turn it over year to year and maybe generation to generation, it just makes it harder to keep it a thing you pass down from, from parents to children, just because uh, the parents aren't as previously invested as their parents were. 
and it just goes on down the line where it becomes more of a niche local sport than the national sport it used to be. Well, let's talk a little bit about what the specific issues with respect to renewing the 2020 season. And we started the podcast by talking a little bit about COVID. And from my perspective, one of the things that was so frustrating about the negotiations between MLB and the players was, to me, there was an easy out. Both parties could have said, look, what we're talking about right now seems way premature. It's unlikely that we're going to be able to play baseball, but, you know, because of this pandemic. But frankly, it seemed to me COVID was put to a side and the dispute really laid bare the lack of trust and the difficulties in the economic part. And I think that was what was so frustrating because June, July, those are times in which baseball is supposed to own the scene. And instead of being able to play, partly because of the pandemic and partly because of these very important labor issues, the only thing that we were hearing about was daily reports on where the owners were and where where the players were. So generally, I heard, and I think you probably can put more detail into this, but essentially it seemed like the dispute was Owners wanted less games because there was a March agreement that you can tell us about in which envisioned the possibility of playing games without fans, but the owners frankly, you know, suggested that there was there was this idea that wasn't memorialized in that would have rearranged how things worked. So basically owners at this point realizing that they'd have to play games without fans wanted fewer games to be played because they were going to lose money. And the players obviously had negotiated so that they would accept a prorated amount of their salaries based on the games played. And they wanted to maximize the amount of games played. Is that in the ballpark of one of the bigger issues that was a stumbling block to restarting the 2020 season? Yeah, the the problem was that, you know, as you mentioned with the CBA coming up after next season, yeah, the expiration of the CBA, is that uh, they tried to use, you know, both sides, but I think you know, the owners initiated the proposals, so it started with them. They initiated these 2020 proposals, these uh, pandemic-shortened seasons. The negotiation for that, they, they set that up to try to, you know, I guess include or at least start angling towards getting an edge or a head start on getting an advantage in the 2021 negotiation. So it was, as you mentioned, the public health took a backseat or oftentimes wasn't even mentioned when it came to what players were paid. And yeah, there were a few proposals taken uh, shape uh, and, and the league offered a few and they all kind of, they were packaged slightly different ways and certain players got priority. You know, like say the, the lower paid players got a higher percentage of their salaries than higher paid players did, or they got the, a uh, lower guarantee, but a higher share of postseason revenue. But when it came to guaranteed pay, it all kind of worked out to be like 35% of what you know, prorated salaries would have been. And it didn't quite inspire the players to accept that because the players, you know, they don't want to have a precedence where they did give up anything less than what they were owed. And as you mentioned, this March agreement, apparently the, 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 the chief thing was that players were owed if a season could restart after you know good faith negotiating, that players would get their full prorated salaries. So if it was a 60-game season of 162, they would get paid for only those 60 games. 
Major League Baseball wanted to pay him less. They thought maybe they could, and it was unclear. It'll be, you know, whether the contract included some loose language that might have been interpreted in the owner's favor, or maybe they meant to negotiate something and realized it wasn't there, and we're trying to get that back and trying to clock back. Either way, the players didn't budge, and ultimately what came down was a 60-game arrangement that uh, was fewer games than the players wanted, but was full prorated salaries. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, what we saw was the players started out asking for, I mean, I think it was like 118 games or... 114. Yeah, 114 games, which, I mean, that clearly wasn't going to happen. And so then the owners were down in the 40s and still not, as you pointed out, willing to pay full prorated salaries. But you saw then... The news, you know, the media started covering, you know, the owners went, you know, 40, 50, 60, the players went down from over 100 to 70. And so I want to make sure I'm correct in in what ultimately happened. The original agreement called for a provision that if the parties weren't not able to come to a full understanding that Rob Manfred as as commissioner had the right to unilaterally set a schedule. So I think the players might have turned the tide of public opinion when they started following Tony Clark's lead and saying, just tell us when and where. And that was when I think the parties were, MLB wanted 60 games, the players wanted 70 games, and ultimately there wasn't an agreement that waived grievances. So that what wound up happening was, I think the owners to cover themselves a little bit in a potential future grievance, agreed to a schedule with, you know, the most games that they had previously offered 60 games, but the players are reporting under the March agreement, but they also have reserved their right to present a grievance that the owners did not do everything they could to have provided a a longer season and paid them you know, more under the March agreement. Yeah, that's more or less correct. I would say that when the players said set the schedule, that was at the point where Rob Manfred, the commissioner, could have instituted a 48 to 50 to 54 game schedule, like 50, you know, basically in the middle is 50 games. And that's when they said, okay, set the 50 game schedule. And if he had done that when they demanded it, it would have been clearly uh, the case where you know there was weeks left over where they could have played games. They could have played you know, an extra 15 to 20 games, and that would have been the money the players didn't get paid. And so uh, you know the players could have had a grievance to say like they didn't negotiate the fullest possible schedule they could. So by doing that, Manfred did have to come up to 60. So while you know they ultimately didn't get the 70 games they wanted, it did meet in the middle in that. Manfred didn't institute the smallest possible schedule he could. He came up to 60 with the public health guidelines saying that probably shouldn't have a regular season extend past September. That made it 60 games in 66 days. And that seemed like something where if the players filed a grievance, probably have a hard time winning that because uh, with what we know about what uh, Dr. Fauci is saying and everything like that, that trying to get 70 games pushing the regular season into October probably wouldn't be that good of a deal and not something either side should really fight for. Well, right. And as we said, I mean, sometimes when I look back at, 
you know, the negotiations over the last month or so, it, it almost seems silly because I'm not sure that it's going to make sense to have any season. And we'll see whether we get out of, uh, you know, summer training. But, you know, one thing mediators try to do is create a win-win situation. I had a friend who told me about something that he uh, picked up from one of his MBA uh, business professors that I use in family mediations every now and then. And that is to start out a mediation by telling the parties, look, I know obviously this is a situation in which you know we're in an adversarial context, we're, we're in litigation, we're going to try today to, to sit down and see if we can't creatively come up with solutions that you know might not be what you absolutely want but are things that you can live with and just try to have a mindset of being open to viewing the situation as not you know not a zero sum game that there can be a win-win situation and one of the things I do if I think it's appropriate for the the parties is I I pull out a tic-tac-toe sheet and I tell the the sides look we're just going to start out with a little game uh, I can learn a little bit about you. And what we're going to do is we're going to play 10 games of tic-tac-toe uh, within 30 seconds. And Jim, if you win, you put your winning sheet on this pile. If I win, I'll put it on this pile. And if it's a tie, we'll put it in the middle. And I'll pay whoever wins $5 a sheet. And invariably what happens when two reasonably intelligent people play tic-tac-toe is they tie. And that's generally what happens. And then I ask if their attorneys are there, you know, well, did they, you know, was there something that they could have done that was better? And invariably their attorneys, you know, they want to support their clients. So, oh, no, I mean, you know, our client, you know, did the right thing or whatever. And, and then what I say is, well, here's what should have happened. You guys should have immediately gone and said, Jim, let me win this one. I'll let you win that one. Then at the end of uh, the... 10 games, I'll have five in my pile. You'll have five in your pile. We'll be even. Our eagles will be the same. But the mediator, Showwolf, is out 25 bucks for uh, each party. And the point of doing that is just to say, look, sometimes the reason we don't think about doing that is because we're so consumed with winning and that winning is so important. But that's an easy situation in which you can find a way where it's a win-win situation but that most people, frankly, don't. And I think my friend said, I, the, the professor who you know, came up with this example, like 98% of the people you know, just tie. And, but you know, looking at what was going on publicly with baseball, I think fans were very frustrated that they saw something that should be a win-win situation in that you know, if you're making over $10 billion in revenue every year, your goal should be to make sure you continue to put a product on the field. And once it got to a dispute between 60 or 70 games, I think fans were frustrated with both sides because everybody from the outside looking in thought it should have been a win-win situation. But clearly, when you're dealing with the economics of a dispute between billionaires and millionaires, that's not always true. But you know, I thought that was one reason why the public in general, was frustrated with the whole situation? Yeah. You know, baseball has never been a normal job. Uh, as you can you hear, that's a child's game played by adults, and they're getting paid, you know, and I would play that game for free, or I'd play that game for, you know, $50,000. And 
not realizing that it's a whole lot of work that goes into it and that's big business and that, uh, you know, money's coming in and that money's got to go somewhere. You know, it's not going back to the fans. It's, you know, just uh, being invested in ownership groups and such. So, yeah, it's an elite thing. It's a big business on the owner's side. It's the best, the best on the player's side. And so it's not really, uh, a normal workplace. And we say it every so often when you hear about uh, players fighting on the field or in the clubhouse or, you know, arguments and what kind of job could you punch your teammate and not serve a suspension. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just so happens that uh, it's a very charged atmosphere that is, you know, often behind the times when it comes to just aggression playing out on the field. It's just raw competition and the players and owners treat it like that. So, that's, I think, where there's a bit of a disconnect. And yeah, you hear the billionaires versus millionaires framing a lot. And I think the one thing that's unfortunate about that is that a lot of players are not millionaires. Like we had Evan Marshall on the podcast. He's a White Sox reliever, had a good season last year, was slated to make his first seven-figure salary in his fifth full pro season. And that's after several seasons in the minor leagues as well. So this is the, you know, that, that one salary was so far the culmination of a life's work. Some guys haven't made you hear about the big contracts, the $30 million a year guys who, uh, you know, nobody should feel sorry for, but most of the league, you know, more than half of the league is uh, just guys grinding it out and trying to get one big payday before uh, their windows are over. So I think uh, a different kind of career, a different kind of environment, a different kind of competition level where there's a lot of just egos and line and, and livelihoods on the line that change so drastically from year to year that people want to protect what they have. Now, that's fair. And, then, you know, another key aspect for a mediator is to try to encourage the parties to see the, the other side's point of view. And, you know, for example, if I was a mediator, I would tell the owners that they have to realize that they can't cry poor while simultaneously refusing to turn over to the union certain financial information. And I think this was related to... I, apparently there's a handful of teams, you know, that supposedly are, are losing more money and that would be in more serious economic difficulties by playing games without fans. And, and that may or may not be true, but if you're not going to share financial information with the other side, you have to understand that the other side's going to, to look at that a little askance, you know, and the union knows this, but you have to stress to them, no matter how much you're getting the details of what you were just talking about with, you know, Marshall is that when you've got hundreds of thousands of people who are unemployed, it's just a bad look to be bickering over a handful of games extra that you'd like to be played, you know, when unemployment is at the level that they're at. And I think the parties know that, but sometimes, uh, you know, again, there wasn't a mediator in these discussions, but if I were mediating that, those were the type of things that I would try to present to each side to help them take into consideration the other side's point of view. Uh, any other examples that you think if, uh, if anybody asked either of us to mediate these disputes that you would be uh, stressing to either party? Well, to go back to what you said earlier, I'm really surprised that the owners didn't make public health the focus because I think that's a, a common ground and, and common concerns that both sides would have had and and you know it's it's something that is the reason why the season is shortened and it's out of uh, their control and it's what they're trying to both fight and manage and work around and you know it's the reason why the schedule is shortened 
and reason why so many precautions have to take place. And if they put that first, you know, with the players, the 114 game schedule, that kind of goes against the idea of the players being concerned about taking the risk if they want to play as many games as possible. That's an argument for a, a nice compact schedule that tries to take advantage of getting a full season in with the fewest interruptions. On the other hand, the owners would be acknowledging that the players are the ones taking the risk by traveling, by playing these games where they come into contact with each other and they share a clubhouse while the front offices can work from home. They can do most of their business from home. They don't have to come from the stadium. They can use their cell phones and Zoom and laptops and and don't have to come into the park very often. So it seems like, you know, both sides could have looked at that and shaped their negotiations around that, trying to get the most per game as the players are trying to do while trying to limit the amount of games and amount of exposure the players encounter. I think that would have been a way to go about it. That would have been very much uh, a humane and person-focused, but instead, you know, I think both sides went into pure economics, the public health took a backseat, and that really confused me because I think that's something that would have been a whole lot more understandable to everybody and, and the public trying to make sense of it. Well, and exactly. And I think as we talked about, the more we're into, you know, whether this is a second wave or just an increase in cases, the more it it just seems silly, frankly, that that wasn't something that was being brought up, you know, much earlier. You know, mediators also try to make sure the parties are aware and fully consider what I call intangible costs of not reaching in agreement. And a typical civil lawsuit, you know, what we're talking about is if you and I sue each other over a breach of contract and we both have companies, you might value the case at 500000 I might value at 400000 and we might think, well, that's 100000 difference. There's no way we should settle. But the reality is we're both probably going to pay lawyers, you know, more than that difference. But Intangible costs isn't just paying attorneys. Intangible costs would be, well, if we have to go to trial, I might have my important employees have to take depositions, have to produce documents, have to take time off for trial, and all of that is an opportunity cost. So as a mediator, you know, in a typical business dispute. Those are the type of things that I try to convince parties to fully consider so that if the other side hasn't given them, you know, what they want in terms of how they value just my likelihood of success and the amount of damages, I think there's still some wiggle room to get an agreement. So when we talk about baseball, again, you know, it seems interesting to me in terms of are both sides playing hardball, but truly at some point they're going to cave because the intangible loss, I guess, with the way it looks like things are going is a potential work stoppage. And the last time there was a work stoppage, and you know, as a White Sox fan, we remember it because Big Frank was in his prime and the White Sox had the best record in the AL. There was no World Series in 1994. And baseball really only recovered from that basically because of the whole steroid era that followed. There's no guarantee that I think if baseball has another work stoppage that they'll be able to fill the void and have decades of the revenue that they've seen lately. So that I think is is something that, you know, I think the parties know, but they're still trying to win and they need to just recognize that at, at some point, another work stoppage is going to potentially kill the, the goose that's laying the golden eggs. 
You know, you mentioned that a lot of GMs are Ivy League grads, and uh, I think there's an article today in uh, on ESPN.com that's you know talking about how that happened on your website. And again, folks, uh, please go to uh, SoxMachine.com. There's some great insights about baseball, about these labor issues, uh, and if you're interested in the White Sox as well. But Jim recommended when we were all trying to figure out what to do uh, with our time in this pandemic to read Keith Law's latest book, The Inside Game. It was a great book. I appreciated it. It was kind of interesting to me because um, I try to kind of go back and forth between books that probably helped me be better mediator and professionally and then obviously things I'm interested in. And so I was I was reading Keith Law's book and another book called Litigation Interest and Risk Assessment. I'm sure you you must have uh, you know have that in your your pile Jim, but uh, obviously that's related to valuing legal disputes, but I thought what was really funny was within the first 5 pages both uh, talked about Daniel uh, Kahneman's uh, thinking fast and slow. And one of the things that Keith Law talks about is that not only are all these GMs Ivy educated and they think similarly, they all have that book on their shelf. And, and I think you had alluded to this before. That's impacted baseball because there's a group think now that if a player is over a certain age, you just can't give them that contract. And Keith Law talks about the Albert Pujols contract, which is pretty much the example used of how you you know, you can't pay somebody for their past work. You have to project what they're going to do in the future. And if they're older, they're less likely to be able to replicate what they've done. But I guess my question is, do you think the owners have evolved as much as their GMs in terms of, are the owners truly recognizing some of the mistakes that that are made? I mean, thinking fast and slow basically talks about man needs to come up with these heuristics to help process information. And it the whole discipline of behavioral economics allows us to identify mistakes that we're making. And so GMs are looking at data and looking at past practices and trying on a baseball level to recognize certain mistakes that they're making. But are owners looking at kind of the history of labor discussions and are they impacted by behavioral economics as much as their GMs? I think they're probably not maybe as focused on that. You know, maybe not purely, you know, I guess the, the how emotions affect economics and the whole behavioral science thing. Probably not as advanced. I think there are some owners, you know, maybe who like Ron Fowler, I'm thinking in San Diego, who's very, I guess, emotional or like he wants to go for it. He wants to make splashy moves, kind of like Steinbrenner in the 70s and 80s when he liked a good headline and he was hard to rein in when others were trying to tamp down spending, he was spending more in frustrating guys. And I think that's harder to find nowadays, both because owners, I think, are more advanced. And also, I think ownership has changed a little bit. You have more boards versus independent personality-based owners. Uh, you have more uh, corporations owning teams like Rogers in Toronto and Liberty Media and uh, Atlanta that uh, don't really have like a public-facing owner. They have some chairman, but they don't have uh, the one person driving it. And so I think baseball people, team presidents, general managers, vice presidents are able to make decisions. And I think in the past, agents could, you know, if they really want to get that extra 10 million or 20 million and want, you know, a team to beat an offer, 
they could go over the heads of the general manager straight to the owner, make that emotional appeal, appeal to their vanity in a way, get them excited about their product, the headlines they could garner, and the owner would get the deal done. And I think that's harder for agents to do now, whether because owners are smarter or because owners trust their front offices to make those decisions for them. I think owners still have some say when it comes to the biggest of contracts, but ultimately I think it's gotten to a point where owners will pay for the best of the best. But when it comes to like the second tier players who might not be as good of bets to make good on those huge contracts, that's when I think it's harder for players to get what they used to get. And that's where the frustration lies. Well, I also think it's a little interesting with this whole focus on behavioral economics. And I admit I'm an old fart. So, you know, it really wasn't around when I was uh, an undergrad. It certainly wasn't addressed when when I was in, in law school, but I think it, it's a great way of just making sure your thought process isn't biased. And there's all of these, you know, particular biases out there. But at times I, I, I kind of think you just never really can tell. One of the chapters in Keith Law's book was basically why you should never pick a high school pitcher, you know, in the first round. And I mean, I think the data and what he shows makes it abundantly clear that it's a very, very risky proposition. But it seems to imply that if it ever happens, it's always a mistake. And we know that there is the outliers that have been incredibly uh, you know, successful. I think Kershaw was a, a high school player, uh, and I guess so was Grinky, I think, drafted out of, of high school. So I don't know sometimes when I think people are being more disciplined about decision making, and that's you know, that's always a good thing. And I think in mediation, I try to always point out ways in that people, maybe even subconsciously, are not necessarily evaluating all the proper factors when they're making, you know, decisions. But, you know, I think like anything, maybe it's me thinking like a lawyer, you can always look at these different biases and come up with arguments uh, for both sides. But I think it's fascinating how in vogue in baseball right now, behavioral economics is probably because more than any other sport, you know, economics has always been, you know, front and center with baseball. Yeah. And the contracts are a lot, uh, you know, they don't have a salary cap. They don't have max contracts like they do in NBA. The contracts are wide open. The payroll can theoretically be as large as a team wants it to be. A, a free agent contract can be as long or as lucrative as a team can uh, pony up for it. So in the past, you know, it's a lot more, there's a, there's a lot greater disparity between the highest spenders and the lowest spenders and teams trying to cut corners and teams trying to spend their way into contention. Now it's even out a bit because there is a luxury tax on the high end, but there are a lot more ways for front offices to go wrong and be undisciplined. Like that's a good word to say, discipline. And I think as analytics improved and projections improved and they got front office talent from a different source, which was, you know, economics and Ivy leagues, economists basically who wanted to uh, be involved in baseball, it brought discipline to it and it's bad news for the players. And it's, you know, ultimately it's good news for, Everybody, if you can find a word that we keep coming back to, is like, you know, moderation, something in between, uh, middle ground where you get, you balance the need to be disciplined and not spend yourself into dead ends where you have to tear it all down because uh, uh, you went awry with uh, too many big contracts, but also, you know, be competitive and, and not be so content to lose seasons and just let fans check out for years at a time. 
Well, I'm not convinced that this trend is something that's permanent. Baseball is a huge industry. Other industries go through, you know, the pendulum swinging one way or the other. I think right now there's no question that the sabermetrics approach, the Ivy educated GMs who are using, you know, behavioral economics to uh, maximize their efficiency and decision making and contract writing. You know, I don't think that's going to disappear, but I think, you know, in the next five years, I wouldn't be surprised if you have a freewheeling GM who bucks the trend precisely because you can make some assumptions that if everybody else is thinking a certain way, you might be able to take advantage of that. And if somebody does that and is successful, I think you'll start to see a pendulum swing the other way. Not to the point where it was in the 70s and 80s, where I think, like you pointed out, all GMs were former, you know, players. Um, and, you know, scouts were, I know a good player when I see it, as opposed to what the, you know, machine says a pitcher's, you know, spin rate is. But I think this just really demonstrates that, like any other industry, things are cyclical. And, you know, it's a copycat league right now. Kansas City, Houston, you know, the Cubs all had success off of a variation of a tanking model. And I think that's uh, why I think fans are willing to allow their teams to tank for a few years, but we'll see whether that's a permanent thing because uh, that would be one thing if I were mediating any type of discussions over the next CBA that whether it's been good in the short term, the economics of baseball need to change so that more teams need to try to compete on a year-to-year basis. Yeah, and yeah, you mentioned the you know what might happen as teams, I guess, all put these behavioral uh, heuristics and such into their, I guess, into their culture, into their mindset, you know, what new heuristics will come up because people are mindfully adjusting, you know, it could change behavior in certain ways where there'll be where new studies go. When people know about recency bias, when they know about optimism bias and sunk costs and so forth, does that introduce any new behaviors or any potential inefficiencies that people are doing because they're so scared of making the wrong move after making moves comfortably but blindly that sometimes went wrong. I, I think it's going to extend beyond baseball in terms of just you know where behavior goes when people have a, a little bit of knowledge across a wide spectrum about what uh, previous decades of behavior did to them. All right, Jim. Well, look, if behavioral economics teaches us anything, it, it shows us that humans are really bad at predicting the future. But uh, we only have a few minutes here, so we're going to make you do something that uh, apparently, statistically, you'll probably do a lousy job at. Let's try to predict the future a little bit. Will the MLB actually get through this uh, summer training and start a season, or is COVID going to be the, uh, the champion this year? I want to say COVID will be the champion just because it doesn't seem like it should happen. But if baseball is really committed to it and fans are, you know, willing to forgive just really compromised rosters and these large substitutions where like, Oh, the bullpen's infected. Got to get a new bullpen. We'll just call it the second string of uncontaminated players. I could see it not resembling baseball, but them struggling across the finish line. So I'm going to say with, uh, very little confidence that they will get a season done, but it's not going to be really satisfying for the bulk of the league. All right. But it would be satisfying at least at some level for one team. So uh, if COVID's not the uh, World Series champ, who is? 
based on the way 2020 has gone and how bad it's been for baseball and everybody and how you know, unsatisfying the whole year is, I think the only logical conclusion is that the Astros are going to win it all. Oh, my God. And everybody's going to be angry about the team that was supposed to be spending the year getting punished for cheating. The only team that really has been rooting for COVID in some very strange way. Yes. Well, we'll all have to be banging our garbage cans and uh, frustration. But, you know, I think the, the, the crazy thing about it is I don't think there'll be as as much venom as there would have been in a normal season. I think people who are upset at the Astros will still be upset at the Astros, but I think it'll all be muted by the fact that there's still a return of baseball. And I think fans who were missing sports so much are also missing the fact that they hate the villains in sports. And so if the villain wins, that happens. You know, a lot of people didn't like LeBron James and he won a lot. And so, you know, but that's part of being a fan is not liking the villains. So I think that's a good call. And I think it would be poetic justice for 2020 if uh, if somehow the Houston Astros, their fourth stringers were better than everybody else's fourth stringers as everybody was, you know, in the medic tent in the mash unit. That's a good one. Uh, it's uh, it's just depressing all around, so you just have to find the gallows humor. No, you absolutely do, and and hopefully uh, by uh, you know you and I uh, you know talking about this, this has provided uh, some type of release for some folks. You know, once again, uh, for folks listening to this who are not familiar with with Jim, go to uh, socksmachine.com. Uh, Jim, it was uh, really my pleasure. I very much appreciate you. Uh, Coming on to the podcast, uh, I think uh, you really helped explain some of the uh, issues between MLB and the, the players that aren't going away anytime soon. Unfortunately, like COVID, I think they're going to be around you know, for a while. So uh, on behalf of me and my wife, I wish you and your wife, I know she's uh, in the thick of it as well, all the best. I hope you uh, stay safe. Once again, very much, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Oh, thanks. This is my first time, I think, being on a non-baseball podcast, and uh, so that was new for me and fun to talk about things that maybe are just a little bit outside the bounds of my normal coverage. And uh, so, yeah, it was fun. And uh, yeah, my same to you and and yours. Just uh, hang in there and uh, stay safe, wear a mask, all that. All right. Well, I couldn't agree more. So uh, that's it for Episode 7. We'll leave the door cracked open for the future. But uh, thank you very much and take care. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.